Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, how to talk about impeachment. The holidays are upon us, and that may mean spending time with people who may have an alternate view on, among other things, the impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. I have what I hope is a fun presentation designed to arm you with talking points that are based on real, verifiable facts. What a concept. And then we are joined again by the Northwest Progressive Institute's Andrew Villeneuve to talk about legislation that he is helping push through Olympia to get rid of Tim Iman's advisory votes, those things that clog up our ballots every year. We also discussed the passage of the so-called car tab bill, I-976, and about what may be happening next. That is all ahead, so stay with us. So as we have followed along with the impeachment inquiry that has been happening in the Intelligence Committee over the last couple of weeks, I am more convinced than ever that we are in a PR battle, that in addition to needing to prosecute the case against Trump for their fellow lawmakers, Democrats have to convince the American people why Trump's conduct is deserving of impeachment. And this is so important, especially in the fog of our current media environment where we have two parallel sets of facts and realities. Well, actually, we have facts and realities, and then we have a Republican media apparatus putting forth an intentionally false and misleading alternate narrative. There, by the way, is actually a tremendous article by David Roberts in Vox that lays all of this out, and I highly recommend that you check it out. I have a link for you at indivisiblepodcast.org. But look, we know the facts of this case, right? We know because Trump admitted to all of it on television. And we also know that our leaders don't lead, they follow, right? So it is up to us to help them do the right thing. And that starts with pushing the truth. And so with the holidays here, a lot of us are going to be sitting around tables with people who are well-versed in Republican media talking points about impeachment. Our job is to counter those talking points with facts and to do it in a calm and concise way. To be clear, this is not about changing the minds of the people spouting these narratives because that's probably not going to happen. What we are doing it for are the people who are listening who may be on the fence about impeachment. Those people are gettable. And if we can bring them around, we may start to shift public opinion and uh, get our leaders to lead. This is by no means going to be easy, but this is really how change happens. And so to illustrate this, I have a short scene for you. This was put together in conjunction with Indivisible Washington's 8th District's Lily Aguilar, Alex Johnson, Cheryl Spate, and Kathleen Hyman, all of whom have created a workshop on impeachment. So in this scene, I will be playing everyone's crazy Uncle Ernie, and I will also be playing the part of you. So we open our scene around a Thanksgiving dinner table. My point is, this do-nothing Democratic Congress is so focused on impeachment, they're not getting nothing done. Well, first of all, Uncle Ernie, there's only one committee right now that's focused on impeachment, and that's the Intelligence Committee. All the other members are doing regular business. But as far as that goes, the Democratic Congress has actually passed dozens of bills, all of which are sitting on the desk of Senate Leader Mitch McConnell, who refuses to allow the Senate to even vote on them. So he's the one who's ensuring nothing's getting done. Whatever. This whole impeachment thing is just a partisan exercise by the Democrats. 
There's nothing partisan about upholding the rule of law in this country. Yeah, but he didn't break no laws. There was no quid pro quo. You don't have to break the law to get impeached. And besides, Donald Trump pushed Ukraine to interfere in our 2020 election. He withheld U.S. military aid and a White House meeting to pressure one of our most important allies to launch a sham investigation into a 2020 political rival. That is the very definition of a quid pro quo. Yeah, but quid pro quo happens all the time in foreign relations. Get over it. Yes, nations use leverage with each other, but only for diplomatic purposes. When Trump extorted Ukraine for his own political gain, it's bribery. Okay, so maybe what Trump did was inappropriate, but it's not impeachable. Actually, it's 100% impeachable. Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution says, The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So, yeah. Bribery is impeachable. Whatever. The Democrats are just sore losers and they're trying to invalidate the 2016 election. Impeachment de facto invalidates an election, and a president brings impeachment on himself when he commits an impeachable offense. So Trump is the one who's potentially invalidating the 2016 election. The Democrats are just doing their constitutional duty. Yeah, but what if what Trump did is so bad, why not just let the voters decide in 2020? Well, first of all, Trump has already admitted on camera that he tried to interfere with the 2020 election. So if he's in office, we can't be sure we're going to be getting a fair election. But besides that, Trump has already committed so many impeachable offenses, obstructing justice by firing James Comey, violating the emoluments clause by continuing to profit from his many properties while in office, violating the First Amendment by making threats and inciting violence against our press. Shall I go on? Whatever, snowflake. Okay, I will. Trump violated campaign finance laws when he paid hush money to two women he was having an extramarital affair with. He abused his power and violated the Fifth Amendment when he pardoned Joe Arpaio. He violated his obligation to protect the citizenry against domestic violence when he gave cover to the neo-Nazis who rioted in Charlottesville and murdered a protester. He's obviously not going to stop committing impeachable offenses, so he therefore represents a clear and present danger to the country. The framers put impeachment into the Constitution to remove a lawless executive. We just want to see the framers' intent carried out. Fine. Knock yourselves out. The Senate won't ever convict him. Yeah, don't be so sure. Yes, right now a majority of conservatives in this country say they're against impeachment, but that's exactly where they were before Nixon's impeachment hearing started in 1973. At that time, Nixon's approval ratings were almost 70%, and only 19% of people thought he should be removed from office. But after a year and three months of impeachment proceedings, his approval rating was 24% and 57% of people wanted him out of office. Right now, Trump's approval ratings are in the low 40s and almost half the country wants him impeached and removed from office. But even if they don't convict, GOP senators will have to go on the record about whether they support a lawless president. And the Democrats are going to be using those votes against them in the 2020 election. And there are a lot of vulnerable GOP senators who really don't want to take that vote. But ultimately, whether the Senate convicts or not is kind of beside the point. Congress has a duty to pursue impeachment when the president commits an impeachable offense. This is exactly why the framers wanted co-equal branches, so that no one branch, specifically not the presidency, could have unchecked power. 
Well, but you do realize Democrats are just helping Trump get reelected. When Bill Clinton got impeached, his numbers went up. Yeah, but when Clinton's impeachment trial started, his approval numbers were in the 60s. Trump's have never been above the low 40s. Clinton showed contrition for what he did. Trump will never admit to any wrongdoing. When Clinton's impeachment was happening, he never talked about it, and he stayed focused on the business of governing. Trump only stops talking about impeachment long enough to meet with dictators or play golf. Clinton did things to appeal to the entire country as his impeachment was happening. Trump is only ever focused on his base, which will never grow larger than it is right now. So in order for Trump's numbers to go up, he would have to do what Clinton did, and he's basically doing the opposite. But Ukraine was actually the ones who interfered in the 2016 election. Hunter Biden, Burisma, her emails, QAnon. We're done here. Pass the stuffing? And scene. Uh, as I mentioned, this is part of a workshop on impeachment put on by the good folks of Indivisible Washington's 8th District. And we have another one coming up, which I will be emceeing. You can learn about the history of impeachment. We'll talk about some of the things you can do. And yes, you will get to see me play crazy Uncle Ernie in person. So come join us on Thursday, December 5th at the Sammamish Public Library at 7 p.m. Would love to see you there. So in our coverage of the election a couple weeks back, we talked about the so-called advisory votes that clog up our ballots and mentioned that there was a bill in the legislature that would address this. So joining us to tell us more about that bill is our friend Andrew Villeneuve. He is the founder and head of the Northwest Progressive Institute, and he's one of the key people behind legislation to get rid of advisory votes. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, man. It's good to talk to you again. So um, as we know, advisory votes are the work of Tim Eyman, who he describes himself as an anti-tax crusader. Uh, I think you probably have other words to describe him. Uh, You've uh, been effectively opposing him for many years now. Uh, First, just tell us what advisory votes are. Sure. So advisory votes date back to 2007. They were included in a Tim Eyman initiative that was meant to make it more difficult for the legislature to raise taxes. And of course, that initiative was unconstitutional, like so many Tim Eyman initiatives are. It it violated Article 2, Section 22, and that's the provision of our Constitution that says you can't pass a bill unless you have an absolute majority in both the House and the Senate. And that's the easiest way to explain what Article 2, Section 22 is, because if you read the text of it, it may it may not be obvious, but it actually sets both a floor and a ceiling for what's the threshold to pass a bill in the legislature. And the founders put that in there because they didn't want in the future there to be any confusion over, well, what's the standard by which a bill gets to the governor's desk? So in the House, you need an absolute majority. And in the Senate, you need an absolute majority and The House currently, that would mean 50 votes out of 98, and the Senate would mean uh, 25 votes out of 49. That's the easiest way to explain it. So what Iman wanted to do was change the threshold for passing some kinds of bills, meaning revenue bills. He wanted to increase the threshold uh, up to a two-thirds vote requirement. And the Constitution says that the threshold for passing bills is just a majority. So when Iman tried to change that requirement with I-960, he also had a provision in his initiative that said, well, if the legislature does pass a tax bill or a revenue bill, then it has to be subjected to what's called an advisory vote. And an advisory vote is really a big giant misnomer. What these really are are push polls. That's what we call them. 
because they're intended as a form of anti-tax propaganda. So when you open up your ballot, or if you if you voted in this election, which you hopefully did, you open up your ballot and you see there's 12 advisory votes. That's 12 pieces of anti-tax propaganda that were put there by a Tim Iman initiative. And the language is dictated by the Iman initiative. The format is dictated by the Iman initiative. Basically, all the different pieces are controlled by the Iman initiative that's set forth in statute, which again is Initiative 960 from 2007, which narrowly passed. That's where it comes from. Okay. For the first few years of I-960, nobody even remembered that advisory votes existed, not even Tim Iman. He just forgot all about them because the main focus of I-960 was the two-thirds vote requirement. In 2012, somebody working for either the Attorney General's office or the Secretary of State noticed that, oh, uh, this actually is in the law. Uh, so. What do we do? And it was determined that they needed to start putting advisory votes on the ballot because that's what's in the law. Now, I believe advisory votes are actually unconstitutional because the Constitution doesn't provide for them. I mean, the Constitution says you can have initiatives, you can have referenda, and you can have constitutional amendments. And the basic difference between the three is that initiatives are proposed laws that citizens came up with. Referenda are votes on laws that the legislature passed but that were either referred by the legislature or by citizen petition to the ballot. And a constitutional amendment is a proposed change to our plan of government that the legislature submits. So those are the three real types of ballot measures that you can expect to see on a statewide ballot. And that doesn't even include local propositions, which is another uh, kettle of fish. But advisory votes aren't provided for in the Constitution, so I think they're unconstitutional. I bet they would, would not hold up if there was a court challenge against them. Well, but yeah, I was going to ask you about that uh, because you are doing this legislatively, um, but uh, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a court challenge uh, against the advisory votes. Is that is That's that correct? Right. That's right. So uh, among the things that uh, people have objected to about the advisory votes being on the ballot are that they uh, not only discourage voting uh, generally because people look at the ballot and like this year's ballot was, I believe, uh, it was unprecedentedly long because I think there were, were there 12 advisory votes that were included on this year's ballot? That's right. And it's also my understanding that uh, these advisory votes, to include them on the ballot, cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $3 million. Is, is that accurate? Well, we don't actually know how much they cost yet because the counties don't bill the state for the state share of election costs until well after the election. And this is actually something that is not well understood is how elections are paid for because their elections are actually a public service just like roads or or fire departments or parks. But we we have this weird system in Washington where the counties send the state a bill for the state's share of what's on the ballot in an odd-numbered year. And in an even-numbered year, the counties just pay for everything. And the reason that system is set up that way is because years ago, we used to only have elections in even-numbered years, state-level elections. And a deal was struck during, I believe, the governorship of Dan Evans but they wanted to spread out more of the state-level elections. So they said, well, let's let's pass a bill that says that we have state-level elections every year, not just in even-numbered years. And the counties were like, no, we, we don't want to pay for elections every single year. And the state said, the legislature said, well, what if we offer to reimburse you for any state-level elections that are held in odd-numbered years? Mm. And the counties were like, okay, Guess we can live with that. So that's the deal they struck. And we've been operating under that arrangement ever since. I think we need to go back to the way we used to do it, 
which is to say that we used to have state initiatives and referenda only considered in even-numbered years. And the reason we should go back to that is because it doesn't make sense for a minority of the electorate or the few versus the many uh, to be making laws for everybody else. Because in this election, we're currently sitting at 45% turnout. We're not going to get above a majority. And that means that the case of the two initiatives, laws are being made by the few, not the many, and that doesn't make any sense. In even-numbered years, we get better turnout, and that's when we should vote on initiatives and referenda, not in odd-numbered years. Those should be reserved just for local elections for those jurisdictions that want to have them. So if we go back to that system, we'd actually be returning to the way it was for nearly a century in our state before the deal was struck uh, but with the, you know, the Evans governorship with, with the counties in the state. So that's some background on you know, how we got to where we are. And there's been no litigation to overturn the advisory votes. And that's simply because when you file litigation, someone's got to pay for that. Lawyers generally want to be paid for their work, just like everybody else. So somebody would have to finance that legal challenge. And so if we can't get the uh, advisory votes repealed, then we would, we would consider a legal challenge. But our focus right now for the 2020 session is let's try to get a bill passed. And luckily, we have somebody who's sponsoring a bill. Yeah. So you have worked with, uh, I believe, Petty Cooterer to introduce a bill to the legislature to get rid of the advisory votes. Uh, so tell us about it. Sure. So the, the bill is 5224, Senate Bill 5224. And it was introduced in the Senate last session. It did pass the Senate and go over to the House. And unfortunately, it didn't get a vote in the House. And that's because former Speaker Chop did not want to put the bill to the floor for a vote. He, generally speaking, has been opposed to any legislation that would overturn part of a voter-approved initiative. And I have a problem with that stance because that means that once the right wing gets some kind of a ballot win that we can't touch it. And I just oppose that on principle. I think the voters' position on any sort of issue changes from election to election. I mean, does anyone think that marriage equality would have passed in the 1990s? And yet in 2012, it passed, right? So voters' positions on the issues do change. And the notion that we have to leave a right-wing initiative set in stone as bedrock forever once it is passed is just, you know, sorry, nope. Well, you're going to have a new speaker in 2020. So uh, right. Lori Jenkins uh, will be taking over. That's right. So do you, do you think that that's going to change the calculus? I do because I think Speaker Designate Jenkins doesn't hold that stance that once a right wing measure is passed, we can't touch it. And it's worth remembering that, you know, Initiative 960, the focal point of it was the two thirds vote requirement. It wasn't even these advisory votes. And Speaker Jenkins knows, Speaker Designate Jenkins knows that. She will be Speaker uh, Jenkins once the House elects her right. the first day of session. But I think she's open to helping us get this floor vote that we need. And, you know, the committee chair, Mia Gregerson, is supportive. The bill did go through the requisite committee in the House last year. So it went all the way up to Speaker Chop's desk, and then it was stopped there in the House Rules Committee. So assuming that Speaker-designate Jenkins, soon-to-be Speaker Jenkins, lets it through, we will have a House floor vote on it, and we should have the votes to pass it, just like we did in the Senate. In fact, in the Senate, we got a bipartisan vote. Three Republicans voted for this bill. Wow. And the, to me, that is very powerful. I mean, Tim Iman's reaction was was rather something. He said that Senator Hans Zeiger, a Republican, was more liberal than any Democrat in the Senate. Mm. Just because Hans voted for this bill, which, you know, is you could even characterize it as a conservative money-saving bill if you wanted because 
It saves the taxpayers money. It removes something that's there that doesn't need to be there. Something that liberals and conservatives can agree on, actually. And for that, Hans Iger got attacked as more liberal than Senate Democrats. I mean, that really made me laugh. Well, I think Republicans have proven themselves to be uh, pretty quick to call out what they perceive as apostasy if anybody breaks ranks. Um, yeah, help us understand the parliamentary rules at work here. Um, will this bill have to begin all over again with the 2020 session, pass the Senate, and then go to the House? Or does the fact that it has passed the Senate then simply mean that it's going to to only pass, have to pass the House in 2020 to become law? That's a really excellent question. So uh, basically, during a two-year cycle, the, the legislature is a body that continues from session to session. So from an odd-numbered year to an even-numbered year, and currently we're in what's called the interim, which means the period in between sessions. So uh, any bills that did not pass and had to go to the governor's desk in the last session, which is a long session. Right. The 2019 session was a 105-day session. The 2020 upcoming session is going to be only 60 days. Yep. So in a, in a long session, any bills that don't get to the governor's desk uh, but do move through the process, those bills are not dead. They remain alive. And so 5224 is an example of a bill that remains alive. Now, it gets returned to the House of Origin because after, after the legislature adjourns sine die, what that means is uh, adjourning without any expectation of returning. And that just means for that session. So the legislature, of course, has an expectation of returning for its next session. But that's actually a separate session within a two-year cycle and not a continuation of, of the last session in that sense. You know, the, each session is separate, but it's part of a single two-year cycle. So bills get to carry over from session to session, but with you know some rules attached. So Understood. the Senate okay. does need to act on 5224 again, but the good news is it doesn't need to start all over as a new bill. There is a technical issue with 5224 that will have to be corrected. And it what is that not, issue? It, it was, uh, it's a defect with the language. The, the, the bill repeals more statutory language that it needs to to accomplish its goal. And so that, uh, that defect was corrected in the House and committee last session, but it will probably be corrected on the on the Senate side uh, before the Senate votes on it, if necessary, because the bill got returned. And I'm, I'm it's not clear to me if they're if they're going to make sure that the amendment is incorporated on the Senate floor or if the uh, bill is being returned with the amendment. And so they don't need to do anything. But regardless, they will make sure that the correct language is in place before the Senate votes the bill out again. And then it will come over to the House and then the House will send it back through its committee process and then it would and eventually get to the House floor, assuming that the House Rules Committee gave it the green light. So the okay. uh, Senate has voted on this bill. Uh, we had a bipartisan majority. We actually had a couple Democrats vote against the bill, including Senator Reuven Carlisle uh, voted against the bill. So if you live in Senator Carlisle's district, you might nicely ask him to actually support the bill this time around. Well, yeah, that it, was going to be my next question. What can people be doing, people who would love to see these advisory votes off the ballots, what can they be doing to help support uh, Senate Bill 5224? So we have a call to action, and that call to action actually goes to all legislative leaders. A lot of calls to action are structured so that you know, you're writing to your representatives but the folks who will actually get to make the decision before everybody gets to weigh in are the leaders. And so we've actually created a call to action that is targeted at 
legislative leaders from both houses to let them know how furious people are that these pieces of anti-tax propaganda are crowding our ballots and actually greasing the skids for the passage of measures like Initiative 976. So our call to action, uh, if you go to https colon slash slash npi, that stands for Northwest Progressive Institute, npi.li, which which stands for link, so the letters L and the letter I, and then repeal Iman's push polls, all one word, npi.li slash repeal Iman's push polls. That takes you to uh, a form where you can create your own letter to all legislative leaders in both the House and the Senate. So you get to hit like 18 uh, folks with a, with a message in one in one uh, call to action. That's great. And you basically you basically tell them, you know, this is why I think the push poll should be repealed. You can say because it costs my county money and I don't like that. Or you can say I object to the, the presence of anti-tax propaganda on my ballot. Or you can say I find these very confusing and I think they should be eliminated. I mean, there's a lot of different things you can say. Uh, but if you send that letter, it helps convey the sentiment to lawmakers that these need to go. With with a broad outpouring, we can we can definitely set the stage for this legislation to be approved in the 2020 session. And I will make sure, I know that's a bit of a mouthful uh, for the link there, so I'll make sure that that is available for listeners at indivisiblepodcast.org. And you brought up 976, which I want to ask you about in just a moment. But first, you mentioned people being furious. And I'm wondering, has there been any polling done to bear that out? We've actually done two polls uh, this year on advisory votes. And okay, of, what of have those, you found? Well, of those people who understand what they are, which, you know, there's a large number of Washingtonians who don't uh, know what they are, uh, but of those who ex- expressed some familiarity with them, there's a 17-point gap between those who want them abolished and those who want them kept. Wow. So the, the, the number who want them uh, abolished, you know, that num- that number of people is substantially larger than the number of people who want to keep them. And it's a 17-point gap in both of, uh, of the surveys that we did. Well, that's formidable. Uh, so I think uh, that speaks for itself. So uh, like I said, I do want to switch over and talk about the passage of I-976. This was Tim Iman's so-called car tab bill. Um, this was not good news. Uh, the damage to our state's transportation infrastructure is potentially going to be uh, quite severe. I'll just ask you, why do you think 976 passed? Well, I think we had a really difficult hill to climb. We were always at a disadvantage from the from the moment this campaign began because of the ballot title. Uh, the ballot title is the language that voters see when they open up their ballots. So when you when you open up your ballot and you saw you know all the anti-tax propaganda, you can think of all of the ballot language as you know basically comparable. So the the stuff that that is in you know the I'm in advisory vote slash push polls. The, cor- the corollary in, a, in an initiative, which is actually a binding ballot measure, the ballot title is the language that is present there on the ballot. It usually says something like initiative measure XX, so put in a number, concerns, blah. And then it will say there's a 30-word a concise description that describes the measure, and then it ends with the question, should this measure be enacted or, or not? And you, and then you can vote either yes or no. Typically, that's the case for initiatives. For referenda, it, the dichotomy is approved or rejected, and I believe that's the same dichotomy that's used for constitutional amendments. So those are that's the format. Initiative 976 had a ballot title that basically said, "Do you want cheaper car tabs?" And then it mentioned something about Kelly Blue Book value, and it mentioned something about how voter-approved charges would be excluded, except they're not. Uh, that was a lie. The measure 
could have said, the ballot title could have said, well, this measure will give you cheaper car tabs, but at this price or at this cost. But it didn't say that. There was no mention of any impacts whatsoever. There was no mention of any trade-offs. It was just basically, do you want cheaper car tabs? And the car tabs would be based on Kelly Blue Book value. Except actually, that's irrelevant. I mean, if the car tabs, if vehicle fees are being repealed, then it doesn't matter what they're based on because they're, they're not going to be in existence. So the fact that they might be based on Kelly Blue Book value in the future is like that's irrelevant for the purposes of this initiative. So that part was also misleading. So that's part of the problem that we had was that we had this ballot title that misrepresented what the initiative was. It was very one-sided. The ballot title actually started out like almost a two-to-one ratio in polling. So when we looked at what, what, what do voters think when they're asked to decide initiative 976, uh, we had a, a lot of, of ground to have to make up. We started out at a big disadvantage. And of course, it's an odd numbered year when you know there's less progressive turnout than there might be in an even numbered year. So that hurts us. And then, of course, we had the push polls, 12 of them, an unprecedented number on the ballot. We had anti-tax propaganda just coding the ballot. And I think that helped grease the skids for Initiative 976 to pass. Indeed, there was someone who wrote into the Seattle Times and, and in a letter said, well, I went to vote on 9976 and at first I was going to vote no. And then I looked at the advisory votes and saw all the tax increases that the legislature passed. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to vote yes. So that was certainly by design uh, for, you know, from Tim Iman's uh, perspective. Yes. The, the advisory votes are the push polls are an Iman scheme that's meant to increase the likelihood of success for all of his initiatives. And that's why they're an annual thing. Whenever the legislature increases revenue, any revenue increase has to get its own advisory vote. And again, that's an automatic thing. And, and just, you know, to mention that if you if you actually want to elicit uh, feedback, you know, or, or gather data, and I, we're in the business at NPI of, of finding out what the public thinks about things is what we do. You got to ask neutral questions. The advisory votes are not neutral questions, so they can't possibly elicit good data because they're not neutral questions. Well, Initiative 976 suffers from the exact same defect. It's not a fair question. Do you want cheaper car tabs and, you know, except for voter approved charges? First of all, that doesn't represent what the initiative does. And second of all, people don't know what the trade-offs are if they don't know what both sides of the equation are. How can they possibly render an informed decision? Sure. And, and, told, and that's that's essentially what you mean by push polling is that uh, it's it's kind of a it's a leading question right there on the ballot. Exactly. If the question invites a particular answer, if the question suggests its own answer, it's not a question that you can use to get good data. Uh, we like to say garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> well, you also mentioned that Iman uh, benefited from what you say was uncritical media coverage of 976. Can you give us some examples? Absolutely. So if you this and this requires, you know, a lot of analysis, which we're, we're capable of, of doing at, at NPI, but which might be hard for the for the the average citizen to do just because you'd have to pull a lot of threads together. But if you pull together all the media coverage and you start looking for like themes in that coverage, one of the things that we noticed was that a lot of the time people just refer to the initiative using Iman's framing. So they'll say like $30 car tabs initiative. Hmm. Well, that's not really an accurate description of what the measure is, is about. Iman says $30 car tabs all the time. That's his slogan. And that gets ingratiated and it gets repeated in media coverage. But a, a, a critical reporter would peel back the layers there and go, well, what is this measure really about? And if you look at what the measure is really about, it turns out Iman's agenda, his real agenda is not to cut vehicle fees, but it is 
to slash funding for multimodal transportation infrastructure. And what is that? Well, that's everything that's not roads for single occupant drivers. So it could be sidewalks, it could be bike paths, it could be railways, new or planned. It could be bus routes, it could be HOV lanes, it could be ramps for for buses, it could be paratransit. So any any of those types of services, Iman doesn't like any of them. He believes that all transportation dollars should go to pavement that he can drive his car on. That is truly what he believes. I know it sounds absurd, uh, but it is what he well, you believes. Know, it's, yeah, it's funny. I was actually, because you have been, as I said, uh, a, a staunch opponent of Tim Iman's for so long, and I'm just, I, and this is speculation, but is it simply a libertarian anti-tax bent that drives Iman? Is there more to it than that, in your opinion? I think he's driven by three things, money, glory, and this belief that we really would all be better off if government was just drowned in a bathtub, like Grover Norquist has said. You know, right. I want to get government to the size where I can drown it in the bathtub. Yep. And, you know, there was a famous poster uh, after Hurricane Katrina showing, you know, New Orleans with Grover Norquist's quote plastered above uh, a picture of New Orleans submerged in water. Yeah. And it was a very powerful image. And I think Iman is is basically after the same thing. It's like I want to defund all of the public services that I don't think should exist uh, on principle. And, you know, well, there's been lots of jokes made over the years about, well, OK, libertarians. So you're going to get to work by walking through the private woodland. You know, you're never going to you're never going to use a public service in your daily life. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> come on, libertarians. We all we all know that's a fantasy. Civilization <laughs> is a pretty good thing. Sure. And if you want to live in civilization, you're going to have to pay taxes because that's what it what it costs. I mean, otherwise you get Somalia. Or, or a country that you know is basically governed by pirates or something, uh, because there's there's no there's no government, there's no system of collecting taxes, which are really membership dues in our in our country in our state. Oh, I like and that. So, yeah, taxes are, are membership dues in our in our country in our state. That's right. So it's just you know li- these libertarian fantasies don't pan out. And another thing they the libertarians do is they say, well, we don't need transit because in the future we'll have self driving cars and you know this this sort of libertarian tech. Uh, utopia will will be created, and it's like that is a fantasy. That that's not going to happen. So self driving cars are are a thing, but they but they can't solve traffic magically. You know that there's there's still physics. Cars take up a certain amount of space on the road. If every person is in a car and there's no one else in that car with them, then you're going to take up a certain amount of space in your vehicle. And it doesn't matter if the vehicle is driving itself or not. It still takes up the same amount of space. Sure. So we got to deal with that physical reality. Well, and as I say, uh, you know, the impact of 976, uh, if it is allowed to proceed, is expected to be pretty devastating uh, on a number of fronts, a uh, number of transportation fronts. I know that there are lawsuits that are already underway. Uh, just briefly, what can you tell us about them? Well, you know, I think if, if like, like I said earlier, if we hadn't had all of this biased media coverage and, you know, some examples, for example, King Five did an infomercial type uh, of, of segment with Iman and Chris Daniels in front of like the Bellevue Licensing Agency. And I really think that that focus on what you're paying as opposed to what you're getting in services was was uh, was damaging over the course of the campaign, coupled with the ballot title and the fact that there was all the anti-tax propaganda on the ballot that hurt us. So now that the measure is, is destined to pass, we have to figure out how to stop it in the courts. And we have a hearing scheduled for the 26th of November, and that at that hearing, a judge will hear arguments over whether the measure should be blocked. And so if 
if the injunction is granted, the initiative will not go into effect on December 5th. It will be instead paused. And then the courts will hear the underlying constitutional arguments against the measure. The earliest time frame that I think that, that there would be a decision would be like January or February of next year. And so the, the trial court, the King County Superior Court, would issue a, a decision at that time as to whether the measure is constitutional or not. Well, here's and, my understanding uh, of that, and, and and I would love to get your take on this. So the preliminary injunction, most uh, observers are expecting that to be granted. That's the one that is going to be heard on November 26th, because the plaintiffs, they have to simply convince the court that 976 will cause damage to the state. But I think there may be a steeper legal climb to argue that it actually violates state law, which would be what would be required in order for it to be struck down entirely. What are your thoughts on that? Well, actually, they, they have to they have to demonstrate that the initiative violates our plan of government, the Constitution. It's it's a proposed law itself. So it's not that it's not that the measure is illegal because it's a proposed law. It's that it's unconstitutional. That's and what I mean they, by violating state law. OK, so so in that in that sense, you're correct. Yes, they have to prove that that the initiative violates the state constitution. And if they can prove that, the measure will not be able to survive because a measure is is not valid if if it violates the constitution. And that's true whether it's a bill or an initiative. It doesn't matter whether it comes from the legislature, whether it comes from the people. All laws have to be constitutional. Uh, that's the way that our system is, is structured. It's the same thing at the federal level. If, uh, if a, a law is not constitutional, it, it can be struck down. So the Washington State Supreme Court will eventually be asked after the trial court is asked to weigh in on the measure's constitutionality. Whoever loses at the trial court will appeal the decision. So the earliest we probably get a ruling on the merits from the trial court is January or February, and then the Supreme Court would take the appeal from the losing side. And then they might hear all arguments in the spring. And then the earliest we would get a decision out of them is maybe like May of next year. That's the earliest. So it's looking like it's going to be quite – the injunction will hold, from what you're saying, at least until May. Um, and I know that you're neither an attorney nor do you have a crystal ball. But I will just ask you, do you expect 976 to be, to be implemented ultimately? I think our chances of stopping the measure from ever being implemented are excellent. And the, the reason I believe that is, first of all, we've been able to stop every I'm in measure except for one that we didn't challenge in the past. Everyone, that, Every measure that got past the voters, we've been able to block in the courts because it was unconstitutional. And I could recite the list, but it's long. <laughs> yes, so it you, want, you want to see the list, go to permitdefense.org, and it's it's there. Uh, but But because we have this excellent track record, Iman doesn't care about writing constitutional measures. He just doesn't care. If he did care, he would put the work in, but he doesn't. So that's that's one thing. And then if you actually look at 976, you can you can read the briefs for yourself. They're public documents. We have the motion for an injunction is posted on our blog, The Cascadia Advocate. So that's nwprogressive.org. But if you read it, there are a lot of constitutional flaws with the measure. And the arguments against the measure's constitutionality actually have to be previewed as part of the arguments for a preliminary injunction because the judge has to know that the plaintiffs have a likelihood of prevailing in order to grant the injunction. So the plaintiffs are previewing all of their constitutional arguments and saying, look, we think the measure is invalid on this grounds and this ground. And the judge will look at that and go, you know, you guys really do have a chance here of proving to me that you're, that this measure is, is unconstitutional because that's what they have to do. The measure is presumed, is presumed to be constitutional until it can be proven otherwise. And once they've proven otherwise, then the measure can be struck down. 
But in the meantime, it's like, should we allow the initiative to be implemented or not? And as long as the judge has a reason to believe that, yes, these arguments are valid, they could well be the prevailing arguments in this case, then he can grant the injunction. So it, it seems that based on the past, you know, looking at what happened with past IMAN initiatives and the fact that there are very real harms that would begin to be felt immediately if the initiative were not blocked. You know, Seattle loses its voter-approved funding for Metro bus service almost immediately. Tiny Garfield County loses money that they rely on to transport people who have medical needs and cannot get around by a car. I mean, this is no. this is what really is infuriating to me is that Tim Iman doesn't care about people who don't have the ability to drive around in their own car. He just doesn't care. And that is really appalling is that he has so little empathy and compassion for his fellow citizens. I mean, people in Garfield County are not like, you know, Seattle liberals, right? So why punish them for the fact that they are aging folks who need access to uh, health services, you know, and, and they rely on paratransit. It's like, why are they being punished? It's just it just baffles me that someone would would be so thoughtless. Uh, but, you know, sure. unfortunately, that seems to be very common now in our politics. And it certainly seems to be common with Tim Iman. Uh, and I want to say thank you for all of your work uh, in opposing uh, what he does. And we will be keeping an eye on uh, everything we talked about here today, both Senate Bill 5224, which, as I say, people can learn more about what they can do if they go to indivisiblepodcast.org. And of course, everybody will be keeping an eye on Initiative 976 as it makes its way through the courts. Uh, Andrew, thank you for all you do, man. You're very welcome. And I'm happy to come back after we have the oral argument or a decision in, at the trial court and explain, you know, what the judge said and what it means for all of us. I will likely take you up on that. Andrew Villeneuve is the founder and head of the Northwest Progressive Institute. And before we go, as many of you know, Tim Iman announced that he is going to be running for governor in 2020. And this announcement happened after my talk with Andrew. But Andrew has since put out a statement which says in part, quote, Iman is required to file a declaration of candidacy with the Public Disclosure Commission, as well as a personal financial affairs statement within two weeks of making an announcement or raising slash spending money. For years, Iman has operated as though our public disclosure law don't apply to him, but they do. Activists, operatives, and candidates alike are all obligated to comply with our public disclosure laws. Villeneuve goes on to say that should Iman file the proper paperwork, quote, we will have a long, long list of questions for candidate Tim Iman concerning his positions on issues he normally avoids. Where does he stand on women's reproductive rights, on addressing lack of funding for behavioral health, on complying with treaty obligations to our Native American tribes, on reducing pollution to our water, air, and soil, on upholding collective bargaining rights, on abolishing the death penalty. Iman may regard a candidacy as another scheme for separating fools from their money, but he will find that people will want to know where he stands on the issues, all of them, as a candidate for Washington State's top job. And that'll do it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you'd like to catch up on past shows, if you want links to everything that we talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. And you can subscribe to the show there, too. If you would like to get in touch, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guest, Andrew Villeneuve. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.